I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Synapse, a podcast brought to you by Nature Careers in partnership with Nature Neuroscience. I'm Jean Mary Zarate, a senior editor at the journal Nature Neuroscience, and in this series, we speak to brain scientists all over the world about their life, their research, their collaborations, and the impact of their work. In episode six, we meet a researcher and author who is fascinated by the evolution of our brains and how they develop in the womb. Hi, uh, my name is William Harris. People generally call me Bill. I'm a professor emeritus at Cambridge University. I'm a developmental neurobiologist, and I'm the author of Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built. A developmental neurobiologist is, is basically someone who studies how brains develop. It's usually done in the laboratory. It's a field at the um, intersection of developmental biology and neuroscience. It's carried out usually at um, the level of experimental animals and cells in petri dishes and things like that, rather than on human embryos. So myself, you know, I worked on fly embryos. I worked on salamander embryos, frog embryos, fish embryos. There are tons of fascinating questions about how the brain is made. I myself got interested in it when I was a graduate student and I was studying some mutant fruit flies. And these mutant fruit flies, they didn't see the world properly. They made visual errors. So lots of people had isolated weird mutant flies that didn't see properly. And when we traced the, the genes that were defective, mutated in those animals, we usually found that they operated at some point in the development of the visual system. So that, you know, all these genes work to build the brain, and that's what really got me interested in it. And from that point, I just got more and more interested in in, uh, how this most complicated organ develops. And uh, my main questions were like, you know, wiring up. How does it get wired up? That's what I spent most of my career doing. I, I'm a Canadian. I grew up in uh, Canada and uh, 
played a lot of ice hockey. That's why there's a lot of ice hockey references in the book, analogies or metaphors in the book. At the age when I went to university, I went to University of California at Berkeley. I was a graduate student at Caltech. Uh, my PhD supervisor was a famous guy named Seymour Benzer, um, and he worked on behavioral mutants of flies. I did postdoctoral work at Harvard Medical School um, in the laboratories of David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel, who studied the visual cortex of mammals and how that developed. And then I had my own career starting at the University of California, San Diego, uh, in the biology department. And about 25 years ago, I moved to the University of Cambridge, where I've been since. I wrote the book because I wanted to do something useful with the perspective I had from 40 years of research and teaching of developmental neurobiology, teaching to, to university students. And I thought I could offer a glimpse into the field uh, for people who wondered about such things and have never ever studied the subject. It's really, I found it really difficult to make such a complicated scientific pursuit fascinating. Um, but I tried to instill in the book some of the stories of the discoveries that have been made. You know, how exactly were these discoveries made? And I added some color because I think people like to know this by trying to tie these discoveries to medical progress uh, in neurology and psychiatry and psychology. Because so many of the um, things that go wrong during brain development lead to neurological or psychological syndromes. Well, human brains are, are really different from those of every other species of animal. In fact, the brains of every species of animal are different from each other because they've been tuned through millions of years of evolution to their particular lifestyle. For example, an insect's brain is, is geared to an insect's world and a human brain is geared to human affairs. But what we found out is that the, the instructions for making a human brain are written in the human genome. So it's largely genetic. If you transferred a little bit of mouse embryonic brain tissue into uh, a culture system and a human bit of brain into a culture system, they'd make you know a little bit of mouse brain or a little bit of human brain. Um, they're genetically instructed to do that. But what way are, what way are the brains different? For example, um, our brains are about 10 times larger than expected for an animal of our size. Human brains are about four times as large as chimpanzee brains, even though we weigh about the same as they do. The architecture of human brains is, is different and human-specific. And the best example is the cerebral cortex, the, the covering of the brain where higher functions are. You know, in humans, it's 75% of the mass of our brain is cerebral cortex. Whereas in other 
in, in monkeys, it's only about 50%. And in most mammals, it's, you know, 20 to 30%. So it's really taken over the, uh, the dominant role in, in humans. So certain areas have enlarged in comparison to other animals, and certain areas have not enlarged, may have shrunk. So another key difference in the, is, the, is the way brains develop. Just one of, the, one of them, for example, is the fact that humans are born immature. Because their brains are getting bigger and bigger, they, you know, they're con- it seems that they're constrict. Well, there's a, a, a squeeze point, I guess you could call it, in evolution where, you know, in the embryo, you couldn't get, couldn't get a, an animal with a bigger brain and deliver it safely. So human, humans are born with a growing brain and it's going to get bigger, but it's as big as uh, a mother can ama- uh, manage at that time. But it means that the brain is still immature when the, a human is born compared to when a monkey is born. And it takes a longer time. And then it matures for a longer time postnatally too. So they spend a lot more time, humans spend a lot more time than our closest relatives in, in learning about the world outside the womb and that having a, an effect on the maturation of the brain. We call the brain this collection of neurons that's in the, in the head region. There are certain really um, circularly symmetric animals like jellyfish, and they don't really have a front and a back, um, and they don't have what we call a brain. They do have a nervous system and neurons that connect to each other, but we call that a nerve net because there isn't one centralized uh, group where most of the neurons are. So in evolutionary time, when bilaterally symmetric animals evolved 500, 600 million years ago and started to move in a forward direction, you know, there was a a front and a back end, it made sense to collect things at the front end that the animal was going to engage in first with the world. So sensory apparatus move there, smell, taste, vision, and the capacity to process the information that comes in through those senses was handled by a growing collection of uh, neurons, which we ended up calling the brain. If you wanted to break it down, what happens in what trimester, you could kind of think of it like this. You start as a, a fertilized egg. And this egg uh, divides, and one cell becomes two, two, four, four, eight, eight, sixteen, and so on. You get this ball of cells. Now, every one of those cells has the potential to make a whole human being. They've got the genetic instructions to do everything, to make a brain. But at some point in early development, only about three weeks post-fertilization, some of the cells, some of those cells become committed to make the brain. They become the Adams and Eves, if you will, of the brain. And they arrange themselves into uh, groups that are uh, the founders of different regions of the brain. There are hundreds of different regions of the brain. But these are the neural stem cells. They're still dividing. They're proliferating. 
and they're going to make a brain of the right size and proportions. They're going to make a brain with 100 billion neurons by birth. Then in the, in the second trimester, growth slows down a little bit, and some of the first neurons are generated from the neural stem cells. And, and connections start to be built between these first neurons. So, for example, in the second trimester, you can already see some movements in a human embryo, and that's because muscle cells have connected, uh, well, neurons in the spinal cord have connected with muscle cells, and neurons in the brain have connected with those motor neurons. So babies begin. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To kick their whole leg, move in slightly coordinated ways, bring their hands to their mouths, uh, things like that. You can see that connectivity is happening in the brain. I, I likened it to uh, how a, a team is formed, and I give ice hockey analogies in the book because that's my that was a sport I played and still coach. Um, so a coach will have tryouts and select the best players for different positions. The brain does the same thing. Maybe two neurons try out for every position. One makes it, who's a little bit better at communicating and the other one uh, doesn't, and the, the one that doesn't has to commit suicide. So they go through a process called, in the business, apoptosis, where they break their, their, their own selves apart. But the, the survivors, once they survive, they have to last your whole life. And then in the last trimester, in trimester three, Neuron production is, grinds to a halt. The wiring up process is still going on, and this period of competition between neurons for survival and then synaptic territory, that continues, and the, the neurons have to connect with each other in really precise ways and get fine-tuned. And this is still happening in the embryo, but it means that, you know, that when you're, when you're older, for example, and, and you're hungry, and you got neurons in your hypothalamus that will uh, sense hunger, you know, sense the nutrition level in your brain, and neurons in your retina that can see a visual image. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, this is kind of the example I give in the book, maybe it's of an English muffin, a picture of an English muffin that you can interpret, you learn to interpret, and then you learn to you know, the, the olfactory circuit uh, in your nose has learned to interpret the smells received as melting butter on, on a freshly toasted muffin. And then the neurons in your frontal cortex organize these pieces of information and integrate them and send signals to the motor cortex 
And the motor cortex then sends signals down the spinal cord to your motor neurons that organize a sequence of actions so that uh, you can reach out and grab this muffin and bring it to your mouth and take a tasty bite. So a lot of that uh, circuitry has been uh, refined during the third trimester. Not all of it, but a lot of it. We don't even really know how many types of neurons there are in the brain, but thousands at least. Given that it's the most complicated organ that we have, it's not surprising that there are lots of different cell types. It's even been shown by recent uh, science that every neuron in the brain has a distinct molecular identity from every other neuron in the brain. And that has a particular job. Obvious for people are things like the rods and cones of our eyes, but the red, green, and blue perceiving photoreceptors in the retina. So that's three types of photoreceptors, the cone photoreceptors, then there's one type of um, rod cell, and then those four different photoreceptor types send their information to about 20 different next-order cell types, and they send their information to another 40 different next-order cell types, and so forth. So by the time the image leaves the retina, or the, the neural signal leaves the retina, it's being seen by hundreds of different types of neurons, each doing a different kind of processing job. There are lots of different types of neurons. Some are numerous and tiny, and some are large and few. And one of the ones that's large and fewer are the dopaminergic neurons in the forebrain that, whose degeneration is linked to Parkinson's disease. They're dopamine-secreting neurons, and they have axons that spread out across the cortex and many other areas of the brain, and they, they tone the brain, allowing people to initiate movements and things like that. When they degenerate, um, then you develop Parkinson's disease. So different neurons, you can find out their function because when, they, when they're gone, it reveals a defect, color blindness, Parkinson's disease, and many other syndromes and um, neurological disorders are caused by defects in the formation of particular types of neurons. Well, although the nervous system has started to fire up, it's, it's, it's active before birth, and these prenatal activity patterns uh, work kind of like uh, test TV test patterns, if you remember those, and they're important to start to begin to tune brain function. But it's only after a baby has been born that the outside world can have and does have such an influence on the activity patterns of the brain. And so the outside world begins to fine-tune the circuitry of the brain. Uh, the baby learns what its mother's face looks like and many other things. The smell of coffee <laughs> or the smell of a muffin. The 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 baby's brain, we say it's overwired. That means too many connect, there are too many connections, but it's also underconnected because the connections aren't very strong at the beginning. And these, these connections need to continue to mature in the outside world. 
synapses do continue to change to some extent throughout life, um, which is how people learn new things and forget other things. It's interesting to think about the brain and the way the brain develops in two basic stages. One is building everything, and then the next stage is refining things. During the building phase, you're constructing, adding more and more and more. And during the refining phase, you're getting rid of stuff. For example, you might build a building, you might have scaffolding, and you put it up, and then you have to take it down at the end. You may have... uh, brought in way too many bricks to build the building and have to discard some of those bricks at the end because they weren't fit for purpose. Well, the brain has a a construction phase and a destruction phase or a decluttering phase. So first, you know, by the time a baby is born, it has more neurons than it will ever have in the rest of its life. Neurons are dying at a faster rate than they are being born in a baby. In fact, neuronal birth is ground to a halt pretty much at the time of birth, but neurons are dying in vast numbers. An adult human only has about half the neurons that it produced during its development. But once the brain has gone through this initial period of um, cell death, when it's refined, got rid of the neurons that don't work so well, those neurons have to survive the rest of a lifetime because they don't divide anymore and we don't have any neural stem cells left. But what the, what the survivors do is they continue to uh, work against and with each other to gain or lose synaptic territory and synaptic influence. And that continues on through, throughout life. So, uh, You know, a neuron might have a branch that goes to another area and that branch might get pruned away because someone else has taken over that uh, territory. Those kind of things happen largely in childhood, but also to a lesser extent in an adult human. My career, and particularly writing this book, has influence the way I look at certain things, particularly my grandchildren. And one of my grandchildren uh, features in the book a couple times. One is about you know, how people learn to be afraid of spiders and whether epigenetics is involved uh, or not. And another is uh, learning to speak. So babies are born with the potential to understand language and their brains are already wired so that they will be capable of getting it, but they can't speak yet. So how does that happen? That's, we talk about that in the book. But it wasn't my research so much, but it was really writing this book that changed my outlook because I started to think about those things from a human perspective instead of a a fish brain perspective. When I was researching, I was thinking about fish brains and fish retinas. Writing the book, starting to think more about human brains. And I learned a lot about the the connections the, the, between evolution and development in the brain. So how animal brains are like ours and how they're different from ours. And the way it's changed my outlook is certainly it's increased my respect for what animals' brains are and what animals are up to when I look at an animal. 
And it's also increased my respect for humans because each one of us is born with a very unique brain. The developmental mechanisms that are used to make a brain ensures that your brain is going to be very different than my brain. It's going to be very different even if you had an identical twin brother uh, or sister that uh, you know was grown in the same environment and had the same genes. There's a little bit of randomness that's thrown in. Probably our brains are the most unique things about us. We have unique faces, but our brains are even more unique. Just you can't see them. That's it for this episode of Tales from the Synapse. I'm Jean Mary Zarate, a senior editor at Nature Neuroscience. The producer was Dom Byrne. Thanks again to Professor William Harris, and thank you for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.